0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And
1: Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically
0: Catholic perspective. Today, our guests, that's plural, will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Kevin Theriot. He is a JD type of doctor, a lawyer from the Alliance Defending Freedom, and we also have our own Greg Burke, the co-chair of the Catholic Medical Association's Ethics Committee, with over two and a half decades of experience in practical medical ethics at a large medical center. But first, Andrew? Yes,
1: we we have a couple of things that we want to go through to kind of set the stage for this conscience rights discussion and religious freedom discussion. Before that, though, I want to make sure that our listeners know about Tom's new book. While we still have time during Lent Uh, the book on Christ's Passion and Crucifixion. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Uh, A little bit. I can tell you a lot about it, but God bless me, I won't do that. I'll just tell you a little bit. Uh, What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion, is the fruit of over 35 years of uh, research and reading and writing on the, the topic to try to make suffering practical, to help you get to know and love Jesus better through understanding what he went through based on the best historical evidence, which updates a lot of fallacies that are out there. It also teaches us, because I've learned from it too, how to suffer in a way that is more effective and more meaningful uh, in my life.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of things that I think we kind of take for granted regarding the passion uh, from TV depictions and movies and things of that nature that I was really surprised to learn really are not based in facts at all. So just as a little teaser of folks who have not picked it up yet, I'd encourage you to consider that during Lent and also to tune in because we have a a slot on EWTN when you'll be on
0: TV, right, Tom? Uh, Yes. Father Mitch Pacwa is going to have me on Wednesday of Holy Week this year, March 31st from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Live talking about the book. Uh, The following day on the 1st, I'm going to record an episode of the EWTN's uh, bookmark. And also, there are going to be a couple opportunities, and we're going to ask our good producer, Andrea, to put the links both in the podcast notes and on our new website, drdoctor.org, where you can watch me virtually do a couple presentations. Well, at least one of them will be live on April 8th from Benedictine College in Kansas uh, regarding my book, uh, and that'll be through YouTube Live. Wonderful. So please, everybody,
1: Tune into that. And, you know, talking about suffering, one of the ra- ways that increasing numbers of healthcare people suffer are through violations of conscience rights. And so that's one of the reasons we wanted to do the show today. I'm really excited to talk to our guests. But before that, uh, I kind of wanted to talk to Tom a little bit and kind of gauge our experience. You know, it's not necessarily representative, but there were definitely times in my training and especially applying to residencies where i don't know things got a little bit sticky where it it could have been it could have gone either way i don't know tom if if you've ever experienced anything in training you had shared a story before i think on the on the show when you were wanting to be in primary care but you had some trouble with your commanding officer regarding your ob rotation
0: well, what happened is uh, my first three years of medical school, I thought I wanted to be a family physician like you, Andrew. And then I realized I liked family physicians better than I liked family medicine. So at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I knew that I had to do a transitional year internship, 13 four-week rotations and a variety of things. And my first two months at this Army hospital were supposed to be OBGYN. And when I told the head of the rotation that um, I'm happy to be on the rotation, but I will not be able to prescribe contraceptives or assist with sterilizations, I was told you will be useless. You are not allowed on the rotation. Wow. That was a, a shocker to me. I guess uh, that's about all there is to women's health care, huh, Andrew? At least in some people's eyes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going to be useless if
1: you can't sterilize people, Tom. We know that's the only thing people care about. I I say that in jest. Oh. hopefully not our listeners.
0: You know, so I, I had to do two months of other stuff and uh, we won't go into that, but at least later in the year, uh, the family physicians on on post let me rotate through there so I could at least learn how to do a, a good pap smear and, and pelvic exam on women, which I would need the, the following two years and what I did in the army. But, uh, you know, that was, that was wrong. Uh, it was also wrong when I was applying to work as a most surgeon after fellowship, one of the places I interviewed, was, was a large medical center in the Midwest in a thought, you know, a fairly conservative area. And after the day of interviews, which I thought had gone well, one of the staff pulled me aside in a stairwell with my wife I'm on my way out of the building he pulls me aside oh we noticed that on your cv it mentioned that you're really active in the catholic church and you know uh, i'm jewish and i'm really nervous about this and there's an atheist guy on staff and he thinks that you're going to proselytize him and i'm like whoa whoa what is going on here it's like it wasn't even brought up once it's just under a list of other things i'm involved in with some catholic stuff and i wasn't quick enough on my feet to realize this is discrimination what is going on here this isn't legal but the practical side of me thought, "Who wants to work with people with that attitude? But I mean, and this was twenty like, five years ago,
1: yeah, i think I think there's wisdom in that, you know who who wants to work in that environment, but unfortunately, I do think there's a lot of people who are put in those positions, you know, against their will or in at times when they don't have the ability to adjust their surroundings, you know we're very blessed, I think, in the role of a physician where we can largely relocate or take a different type of job or that type of thing. But I know there's a lot of people who work in healthcare who don't have that type of autonomy with their role. And you hear about these stories of folks losing their jobs. And unfortunately, a lot of these issues, especially related to women's health, but also end of life issues have become ideological litmus tests for people in the hiring process. And, you know, I I run a
0: small Well, what practice. happened to you, Andrew, when you were going through residency applications, didn't you experience some of this?
1: I did, you know, and I, I, my story is a little different. I knew I wanted to do family medicine, but I was really kind of looking around for a program where you could do extra training in, in things like colonoscopies it's something that I do, I really enjoy. And so I had a very few number of uh, residencies that I, I looked at and went to visit. And one that I really liked, I'd say, was probably a lead contender. I did a month-long audition rotation there, which a lot of people do in medical school to make sure it's a good fit. The whole month went, went really well. And they're like, yeah, we're really excited. We'll do your interview while you're here. And uh, I, I was getting a little bit cocky, I guess, because it was going so well <laughs> that I wanted to drop the Catholic stuff on him right there. Just kind of off, caught him off guard, see what he thought. And the program director said, You know, I've met people like you before. Uh, we've accepted them, so I don't think that'd be a problem. But we were able to always change their mind before they graduated um, in hey. regard to abortion and birth control. Wow.
0: And abortion uh, <laughs>
2: also? Wow. Well,
1: our, our conversation primarily surrounded birth control, being in family medicine, but they had a robust OB. Uh, training program where you get to do C- C-sections and things for for practicing, where you don't have a lot of medical support. But that was one of the things that, you know, kind of the same issue. I thought, you know, whether they'll have me or not, this is probably not going to be the best fit, uh, regardless if they tried to change my mind, so to speak. But it's going to be an environment where I can't thrive at all. And ultimately, you know, a different story, how I ended up here in Fort Wayne, it was truly a, a blessing because It was juxtaposed with my interview here, where the program director, not a Catholic, very nice gentleman, was reading through my CV, and he saw. He said, "Oh, you went to Ave Maria University. That's Catholic. You know, if (laughs) if you don't want to do birth control here, we'd love to have you. We've had people like that before. (laughs) That won't be a problem at all. We'd be happy to work with you." And so it was a huge, a huge sigh of relief. I I took it as a sign. So did my wife. And so here we are. But. The thing that really I think all of us should find troubling is that you're going to have to necessarily potentially move around or lose your job or things of that nature. And these issues of conscience protection are not getting better necessarily. You know, we've had in, in times past a few encouraging things like the Office of Civil Rights. I know we'll discuss that today, but there are a lot of signs that are also pointing to maybe more persecution of this type for people in healthcare.
0: Yeah, sometimes it feels like the walls are closing in and that's why we brought our our guests on. One from the world of medical ethics, one from the world of law fighting for healthcare professionals. Uh, Before we get to our guests though, we have our medical trivia question of the day. And the category is reversing regretted medical decisions. You know, two procedures, you know, that one that's come up here, but two that some physicians don't perform because we believe they're harmful for patients are tubal ligations and vasectomies. Reversing these procedures has actually become more common. So it's a two-part question. According to Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, what's the success rate for achieving pregnancy for women who have had their tubes untied? And the second question, uh, in a review of over 1,900 patients with vasectomy reversals reported in 2018, what is the success rate for spurring being able to travel and the pregnancy rate for women helping their wives achieve pregnancy after a vasectomy reversal so we'll be back with those answers toward the end of the show but after the break here on dr doc welcome back to dr doctor where andrew and i are glad to bring you both greg Burt and kevin terrio greg is an internist internal medicine specialist who is the chief patient experience officer at geisinger medical center in danville pennsylvania He's also the medical director of both a nursing home and a rehab hospital. And for today's episode, he's here because of his expertise in, expertise in medical ethics. He's co-chair of the CMA Ethics Committee. He has over 25 years experience on ethics committees and dealing with practical uh, ethical conundrums in medical practice and writing and speaking about them. Kevin Terrio is a senior counsel and vice president of the Center for Life at the Alliance Defending Freedom. He's been there since 2003. He directs the work of team members with these kind of small goals. I think he needs to expand his horizon. He's just trying to overturn (laughs) Roe v. Wade, defend pro-life speech, and battle against physician-assisted suicide. Maybe he'll up his game after this episode. I don't know. But he's been lead counsel or co-counsel in numerous cases, preserving uh, freedoms of speech and religion, even including the current uh, nominee for – Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, He's done a lot of great things after earning his law degree at Vanderbilt University Law School. He's also a member of the U.S. Supreme Court and numerous federal district and appellate courts. Greg and Kevin, welcome to Dr. Doctor. So, first of all, definition Mm -hmm. of conscience. Uh, Kevin, first to you. According to the law, what is conscience?
2: It's a conviction based upon uh, moral or religious principles that guides your life. Greg? Pretty simple. According to the church.
3: Yeah, well, yeah. Conscience, I think, is probably the most fundamental aspect of what it is to actually be human. Mm -hmm. Um, It's our ability to distinguish between good and bad action and then to uh, actually then cooperate in the virtue of integrity that you are true to what you know to be good and bad. And um, I I think it's probably the fundamental part of, of a person's character is the ability to follow conscience. It's so a little mm. bit deeper, you know, philosophically and maybe even metaphysically to think of it that way.
1: So those definitions sound pretty important. It's hard <laughs> to believe that there are some people who feel like maybe that's not important or it's a secondary right compared to others. What What is the basis for believing that there is even a right to conscience protection?
2: Well, from a legal perspective, it's it's based on the you know, the founding documents, you know, all, all men are created equal and we have certain rights that are given by our creator. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a founding, founding principle to our um, way of government and our system. So I think, I think, I think it's not only metaphysical and religious, (laughs) but it also has very practical implications, uh, and, and George Washington, I'm not, I'm going to butcher the quote, but he said something like this. He said he said that um, in order for a democracy to work, um, you have to have religion because people have to self govern, and the only way you can self govern is if you have a conscience.
0: Greg, how would uh, you answer that? Yeah,
3: well, no, that's a, that's an excellent answer. I think you know, I think up until recently, most religious and secular authorities would agree that that conscience is the fundamental human right, um, to follow conscience. It seems, you know, I think in the, in an era of moral relativism that it now has sort of a secondary status and it seemed regulated to just personal belief and habit and, and preference. Uh, but for millennia, that was not the case. And I think, you know, most lawyers and, and clerics and pretty much anybody with a thinking brain would say, no, 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 no. Conscience is the key to a person's, um, happiness in life and has to be protected at every, every, every angle at every, every moment.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Kevin, what, what is the relationship between conscience rights, which we're talking about, and religious freedom or individual freedom? Because I think a lot of folks tend to conflate those. And as easy as they can write off people who believe in religious things, they can write off conscience protection as well. Is there a difference there legally?
2: Well, from a legal perspective, there is, um, I haven't really thought about whether there's much difference from um, a metaphysical or practical perspective, but um, the bottom line is the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protects religious freedom. So uh, there is built-in constitutional protection for those with convictions or conscience uh, that is based upon religious belief. Um, But our uh, system of government and uh, in our Supreme Court has recognized that that we also protect moral convictions. Um, the conscientious objectors uh, to participating in war that were made famous in the Vietnam era—they—they—they uh, they, they didn't have to have a religious basis for not uh, participating in the war. As a matter of fact, many of them didn't. But um, their ability. To not participate, um, even though it was similar to some religious convictions like those of the Quakers, it uh, it was still protected. And so from a legal perspective, I think both are protected, but some religious convictions, uh, if, if if your convictions, if your conscience is based upon religious convictions, you get some more protection, generally speaking.
3: You know, I'm I'm reflecting on that too. Thank you, Kevin, for that that insight. Um, It seems to me, particularly in medicine and professional ethics, you know, this this dilemma now revolves around patient autonomy versus the the physician's conscience, as they would say. Um, But I think a lot of the issues that we debate, and even working as you're working with Roe versus Wade, I don't necessarily have to be framed as religion. Uh, Some of these are just basic ethics and morality plays that play out in everyday life. And I wonder if that's, if, and be interested in your opinion here, I'm asking a question, I'm not the interviewer, but, you know, have, <laughs> we, have we made a mistake um, in in necessarily regulating or relegating, rather, these issues to religious issues? I know President Biden often states he doesn't want to involve himself in the abortion issue because it's a religious issue, and he has a different religious opinion than secular uh, legal opinion. Um, I would argue, uh, dear Mr. President, it's not... A religious question. It's a question of human ethics and morality, um, that goes outside of any religious divine revelation.
2: I think, I think you're right. And in, in, in just a practical example is the March for Life. So the March for Life, uh, headed up by Jeannie Mancini, um, does the, the annual march that is just so such, an, if you've never gone, you should go. Let me give a little plug for Jeannie. Mm-hmm. It's just so encouraging all the young people and how, um, how, uh, just committed they are to protecting life is, is fantastic. But you know March for life is not a religious organization. They have decided to, even though I think Jeannie is a devout uh, Catholic and many, many of their staff are um, very religious and the reason for their conviction is is religious, they've decided to be secular because there are pro-life people, for instance, uh, that aren't religious. And so they wanted to appeal across the board and to make a statement to exactly what you're alluding to, Greg. And that is, look, this goes. It shouldn't matter what your religious convictions are. If you have any sort of um, ethics at all, you should understand that um, killing babies in the womb um, is 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 contrary to um, what makes humanity special. And. Um, and so March for Life is, is a good example of that. So
0: so Kevin, I think where Greg might be going with this and something that I've
2: wondered and heard
0: is that going after this either as conscience protection or as religious freedom is, is too narrow or isn't a good way from a legal standpoint that there should there's a stronger way to do it, but I'm not clear what that stronger way might be. Or is conscience the best way to go after these protections for doctors and nurses?
2: Mm-hmm. Well... And of course, what we usually do is we conflate conscience with religious conviction um, unless we're forced not to. So, uh, so for instance, March for life is our client and right. we've been representing them in the battle against the Obamacare uh, abortion abortifacient mandate that, that they have to include in their employee benefit plan coverage for abortion, even though that violates the real, the, the founding principle and the reason they exist. Right. So um, so they've got some protection, but they don't have as much protection as the little sisters of the poor. have. Um, so so we've been you know, we, we've been uh, having to make a little more creative arguments. Now, the good news is we were successful. Um, we were able to get a court to rule for uh, March for Life and say that they did not have to abide by the abortion pill mandate. Uh, but that was. uh there was a lot of uh, godly intervention there. <laughs> you can say it's probably right. true in both in both situations. The little sisters had some godly intervention too. I'm sure they were praying, but uh, the the chances were uh, much better for them because they just have more laws protecting. Them.
0: So we've got a lot of juicy questions to get through, Kevin. Why is this so important? And do you have a story to illustrate it?
2: It's vital because it really affects the ability of, of, of healthcare professionals and others to even uh, become contributing members of society, to earn a living. So we represent uh, Sandra Rojas, who's a nurse that worked for um, a county uh, medical facility up there just outside of Chicago in Illinois. Uh, she worked for him for 20 years, and she's a devout Catholic that Um, Would not prescribe abortifacients, would not participate or refer for abortion or counsel for abortion in any way. Well, they got some new management who came in and said, no, we want all of our people to do those things, even though we've been able to accommodate you for 20 years. You've been a fantastic employee. Everything's fine. But unless you start doing this, you're going to you can't work here. And she said, I can't I cannot. And so they basically fired her. Um, She had she filed a lawsuit. And uh, the good news is the state of Illinois, believe it or not, enacted some great conscience protection back just after Roe came down in like 1973. Yeah. And uh, so she's got some good laws protecting her, but she's having to go to court to do it. One of our uh, more than 3000 allies, Noel Sterrett, is the lead on her case. ADF is providing some funding from that case, but it just goes to show you what can happen um, if you you can lose your job if you decide to stand by your convictions and if there's not protection, or if you're not willing to stand, take a stand and assert those rights.
1: Greg, I'm I'm kind of wondering in regard to conscience protection, is this something that only really applies to physicians and nurses? Or is there really something that we need to think about in regard to everybody in the healthcare system? I'm wondering even, you know, the, the medical assistants who might be called to assist with Chemical abortions or other IUD placements becoming more popular, that type of thing.
3: Right. No, I, you know, that's a great point, Andrew. I I couldn't agree more that um, not not only should physicians have the right to object to participate in something unethical or immoral, that anybody in the healthcare uh, field should, you know, be exempt to cooperate in any material way with something they would think was wrong. It's just common sense that it should apply. We, we as, a, as an organization, the Catholic Medical Association, as we've been working through a position statement, have clearly stated that all healthcare workers should be afforded this sort of protection uh, to practice. Now, admittedly, Andrew, there's different levels of cooperation. A physician who does an abortion or does not do an abortion in, in defiance of his health employer or whatever is much different than, say, the person who is environmental services and might clean the operating room. So there, there may be some differentiation by your level of, of of how immediately you're involved or formally cooperate with the action, but anybody who's feeling guilty because they're doing something in healthcare and it's violating conscience should be able to seek um, protection from people like Kevin or from uh, you know either federal, local, or even hospital policy to protect them. We feel very strongly about that,
0: Kevin. You've had a run-in in in the past with Javier Becerra in the state of California. What's the state of conscience protection in America, especially if he gets uh, to uh, take the reins at HHS, Health and Human Services?
2: Well, Mr. Becerra wants to impose extreme policies on Americans. There's no question. Um, He's not a moderate when it comes to abortion and religious freedom. Uh, We uh, saw that firsthand in the NIFLA versus Becerra case. That we litigated uh, actually had to take that all the way to the supreme court they were coercing pro-life pregnancy centers in california to refer for abortion to advertise for abortion even though once again that goes contrary to the very purpose and the good news is we were able to win that case and and uh the state of california had to pay our attorney's fees which was uh, uh quite satisfying uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, the, the the bad news is if he has this position of power, this cabinet position, um, I think it's a cabinet position, and it's yes. certainly uh, then um, you know he's he's gone on record of, as being very pro-abortion. He opposed the the ban on partial birth abortion um, back when uh, uh, you know he was in the, the legislature, and, and of course Planned Parenthood and NARAL love him they gave him 100% rate. Um, and he opposed a ban on abortion um, that protected uh, children from abortion because of their sex, a huge problem throughout the world. Um, so uh, I think that not only is he going to be uh, vociferously pro abortion, but he's also going to um, be very interested in treading on the rights of those uh, who don't want to participate in abortion. And And you'd think that President Biden, um, because of his uh, Catholic convictions, would take that into account when appointing him. Uh, But uh, so far, we haven't seen that. So, Kevin, how do you keep a positive attitude when you
0: when there are people in power that are doing things like that? Because some people have a tendency to think, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling. We don't have any protection. How do you view the big picture?
2: (laughs) Well, I, I'm laughing because you remind me of my good friend, Ken, uh, because he says, uh, he says, how, how do you not just get mad all the time? You know, well, how come you're just not ticked off all the time? And, and we just have to remember that uh, that God's the church is going forward. He's promised that. And God's purpose is going forward. And um, if we are uh, and, and, and we're blessed and privileged to uh, that, he allows us to be part of that. And so, uh, you know, we can, uh, do our best. Uh, and, and certainly, um, you know, I think the Bible says that the, the horse and ridey, rider rider are made ready, but the battle belongs to the Lord. The outcome is him is he. And so we, we could do our very best. And, and certainly that is, that is not only important, but it's commanded by scripture, uh, but we also have to trust him and believe that he's in control. And the fact of the matter is that he allows us to be part of his plan. And sometimes his plan doesn't work out the way we want it to. But sometimes, just like yesterday, it does. And we get a great win in the Supreme Court. And and they take a stand for religious liberty. And we get to keep the doors open for the truth of the gospel another day.
0: Thanks be to God. I think this is a great place (laughs) to take our break before we head into... More juicy stuff here on Dr. Doctor about religious freedom and conscience rights for medical professionals. And we're
1: back with Dr. Doctor talking today about religious freedom and conscience protection. More specifically, Greg, I wanted to open up this segment talking about conscience rights, not only of the doctor, but of the patient. I feel like a lot of times these are pitted against each other. Sometimes they call conscience rights for the patient's autonomy. Could you Mm -hmm. delve into that and how these maybe are not opposed to each
3: other? Sure. I mean, I I think you're right that this sort of conflict between professional ethics and patient autonomy, that represents right now the height of this dilemma that we're facing. I I would want to make the point that a a good doctor should always be working towards the benefit of of his patient physically psychologically, even spiritually. and this goes back to a, uh, Ed Pellegrino, a very well-known Catholic physician now deceased, who wrote about the philosophy of medicine. And he would claim that, you know, um, you know everything we should do with, their, uh, with the patient's autonomy in, in sight, we shouldn't violate their right, their rights to autonomy. but our, our goal should be always to seek their benefit. That's part of the professional trust relationship. I think in the end, all doctors, all clinicians, healthcare workers are called ultimately to serve and love their patients with a well-formed conscience in the practice of medicine. And really following their conscience, therefore, is the fulfillment of their calling as a doctor, uh, to benefit and serve their patients, to relieve their suffering, to heal their diseases, to journey with them uh, if they're going to die. That that's all part of what we're called to do. And if we don't have our conscience protecting that ultimate good, we have nothing left. We're just machines, robots, passing out pills and procedures.
1: Well, Greg, you bring up a great point because we're focusing a lot on, you know, abortion and things mm-hmm. of that nature that are are important to us and to many of our listeners. There's a lot of places where conscience can come into play. A, a place that occurs to me right off is the the use of opioids and uh, sure. chronic narcotics. So maybe from an autonomous position of patients requesting these, and that's their opinion. But as you said, loving the patient, really wanting what's best for them sometimes requires you to not provide things that they might ask for. Did, Kevin, do we have any yes. protection for that type of thing?
2: You do. You definitely, has, as, as medical professionals, have some conscience protection. And sometimes it differs uh, depending upon whether you work for an government. Uh, facility or a private facility, but no matter who you work for, there are laws in place that say uh, that you can't be coerced to violate your convictions. And I think one of the important things to remember is there is pressure, you probably feel it, um, to convert uh, the practice of medicine from a profession um, to more of a commodity. like you were just saying, just dispensing mm-hmm. pills, and and, and the, the the opioid example is is fantastic. It's much more practical than the mm-hmm. one I usually use, which is the the body integrity identity disorder. The people oh, yeah. who believe that um, they have four healthy limbs, but they really feel like a paraplegic, and they are asking a doctor to amputate uh, two of their le- two of their their limbs, and. And most doctors in the world would say, no, 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 (laughs) you can't, you will violate your oath. If you do that, there's no way that that should be ethical is ethical and no way that that should be legal. But if, if, if doctors just become mechanics, which is what some ethicists are pushing for, you do whatever the, um, whatever the the patient wants, then if they want to, you know, and a mechanic says, well, you want to, wait a second, you're telling me you want to, uh, lower your car, take out the shocks and put these wide wheels on it. So you can't, uh, you know, so you can't even turn uh, very close. And every time you go over a bump, you you get a flat tire. Yeah, that's what I want to do. All right, we'll do it. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you want, that's what we're going to do your car. But other than my father-in-law who gets uh, stuff fixed every time uh, on his body, just like a car, most people don't view the practice of medicine as being like a mechanic. <laughs> um, and and it shouldn't be it should be a profession and not only that the law should protect your ability to continue to make it a profession and and where you're abiding by the hippocratic oath that says first do no harm no matter what the patient says i have another
3: question here i go with my questions I'm, i, I can this is such a good conversation with, the, i think it's a good, good greg we're going to get you. no <laughs> no but I, but I but i think it hits upon something kevin it, does in in the legal profession, do you have conscience protection? Are there is it just medicine that is under assault, or are there other fields now that are looking out for protection of conscience?
2: Right. Well, and and the answer is yes, we do have conscience protection, and yes, it is under assault. It is under attack. Uh, this whole idea that um, you know the the term discrimination has been hijacked to uh, be used by the left to basically say it's whatever you're doing that we disagree with or the whatever you're doing that um, we think you should be doing that you don't want to do that's discrimination and of course that's ridiculous but that's what they've that's what they've done and in the legal profession uh generally speaking lawyers should not take on cases where they cannot be a, a zealous advocate for the individual that's hired them and, there's, and, and if you have a religious or a moral conviction not to, for instance, advocate for the death penalty, you should not have to advocate for the death penalty. And most people would agree with that. But there is an effort in several bars around the country, different states, um, to say that if, a, uh, if, for instance, somebody wants to hire you uh, to file a lawsuit because they feel like their same-sex marriage is being discriminated against, you have to take that case if that's the kind of case that you normally take, oh. and uh, if you would take the same case for a heterosexual couple. And and of course, that's uh, very similar to the attack that's going on against doctors right now. Thank you. So, Kevin, it sounds like,
0: you know, to put it simply, uh, that according to certain people in our country, patients have a right to conscience, but doctors and nurses don't in their professional capacity. Would that, does that summarize it?
2: Yes, I think it does, and exactly you, especially fair. if you define you define conscience as whatever you feel. Ah, uh, so see that's subjectivism. That's, yes, exactly. It's truth has become relative, and is not is not. Uh, there's no such thing as objective truth. So if that's your truth, then we have to acknowledge it, and not we as we as professionals, whether we're doctors, lawyers, or whatever.
1: Kevin, can you tell us about some of the ongoing legal battles that ADF is working on currently?
2: Sure, Um, we've got some some really I think they're exciting cases, but you know the old saying that uh, um, to to him who is good with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, so (laughs) I'm pounding in nails all over the place. Uh, But uh, (laughs) we've got a great case in North Carolina where we're representing the North Carolina legislature. North Carolina has a lot of common sense laws. Uh, that regulate abortion, you know, a a waiting period, the requirement that women get counseling beforehand, because this is a big decision that many regret and has negative implications for their life. Well, all of those regulations, or many of them, are being challenged by Planned Parenthood, and we are representing them um, in the court right now. What Planned Parenthood is trying to do is establish a right to abortion in the North Carolina Constitution, which has never been discovered before. So um, it's very similar to what happened in Kansas. So we're involved in that case. Another really interesting case is in North Dakota. North Dakota passed a law that said that women who are getting ready to have an abortion need to have informed consent. They need to be properly informed of what they're doing so they don't regret it later. And two, two aspects of that is, number one, they have to be informed that they're going to be terminating, terminating the life of a whole separate um, uh, intact human being when they do that. And the other uh, thing they have to be informed of is if they're doing chemical abortion, um, that if halfway through, after taking the first pill of the the two-pill process, they change their mind, there is a possibility that uh, the process can be stopped. And so um, that was challenged by the American Medical Association. And we're in the process of litigating that. It's really uh, amazing to me uh, that the American Medical Association is opposing a law that allows women to have more information. Uh, but that's where we're at.
0: But the AMA only represents what? About one in five physicians also.
2: And well, following, they, I would they say. Cert- yeah. <laughs> they certainly don't. Uh, I think they describe themselves as the largest, uh, medical, uh, largest organization representing medical professionals. So
1: well, Greg- they are. And Greg, I wanted to yeah. ask you also about a new a new law that's coming up, and I'm sure Kevin will have some insight too on the Equality Act. I guess not a law yet; they're debating it. They're trying to make it a law. I can only imagine that's going to present some unique challenges. What do you foresee, Greg?
3: Yeah, I, I do, and I think you know at the onset, you know, there's always things we agree upon. So I think I would certainly agree as a Catholic. I'm sure, all of you on the call would agree that you know fo- folks should not be treated with discrimination unjust discrimination bias bigotry and so on so that's that's a no-brainer I think we we'll are all agree on that the, the biggest issue I have with the equality Act uh, is how it alters biology and reality in some ways well, I've been practicing medicine for 30 years I know the difference between male and female uh, I take care of transgendered patients i it, you know it's not an issue for me to, to recognize that difference while respecting the human being my my greatest concern is is being forced to deny that reality using a, a pronoun that doesn't describe things accurately. Because then, then then I'm lying, and that's, that's a virtue that I mentioned earlier about integrity. So that if I'm saying something I know not to be true, um, you know, as a, a scientific biological fact, a chromosomal reality, that scares me because mm-hmm. I would be forced to lie. And I, that, had, to me, has nothing to do with treating people with respect or helping them with illness or being available for emergencies. But I can't participate in what I would see as a lie. So I see you're showing a picture of Thomas Moore. There's, there's an example for all of us. I cannot <laughs> lie. I, and, and that is a very strong, deep concern. And I can tell you in the, the current culture, I share this view with, with leaders in my organization that are fairly you know, prominent in the organization that share this view but are afraid to speak it. Because mm-hmm. of that, of somehow being labeled as bigoted in some way, which if you were to see these clinicians, they are the, the epitome of not being bigoted, being caring, compassionate, competent physicians who are afraid to speak out about biology because it is seen sometimes in a negative way. So codifying that in law to me is, 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 is where I'm concerned because I never want to be forced to tell a lie.
1: Kevin, what kind of trouble do you foresee on the legal front? Is this a whole lot more work for you guys, probably coming down the pipe?
2: Absolutely, and and I would just reiterate that our laws should protect constitutionally guaranteed freedoms of every citizen, no matter who they are, and they should be treated with dignity and respect. But what's happening is um, these this Equality Act will is intended to be used to undermine both fairness and freedom. Uh, for instance, it could enshrine the uh, abortion into law. It could force uh, Americans to pay for abortions with their tax dollars, including abortions up to the moment of birth. And it could be forced to, it could be used to force healthcare providers in the name of anti-discrimination uh, to participate in abortion. Um, there's an argument that's, uh, that's that we've heard for years that if you de- decline to participate in abortion, that's sex discrimination because only women get abortions.
0: Hmm. But half of the aborted patients are males.
2: Well, that's a good point.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, th- this seems incredibly frightening, like the world being turned upside down. And, you know, one of the things St. Thomas More said is that, you know, things are never so bad that a good man cannot live in them. Of course, good woman, too. He used uh, man as homo, not vir, you know, in the Latin. But uh, anyway, uh, so if the Quality Act passes— how do we? How do we speak out? Like Greg is saying, many people are afraid to speak out things that five, ten years ago, it would have been thought crazy that you would be afraid to say them.
2: Yeah, it's a huge issue. This this whole cancel culture um, that says that if you if you say something that we disagree with, we have the right to censor you. We have the right to shut you up, which is completely contrary to what we grew up with. And that is that, Hey, look, I disagree with you, but I'll defend your right to say what you want to say. Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that is foundational, that concept of free speech that, that you let the marketplace uh, determine uh, the, the the benefit or the validity of an idea, not the government, um, or not big tech is where we're at right now. Uh, yes. is, is if you if you say something that uh, that big tech disagrees with and, and it's not woke enough, then uh, you can you can lose your platform. Um, so uh, the the answer is, I mean, the the good news is the First Amendment and the free speech clause of the First Amendment is still uh, very much intact. Um, I think the ruling from yesterday, the Supreme Court that we won, that was a free speech case. Um, that, that, and the, and, the Supreme and Court summarize out that for order.
0: listeners so they know which case we're talking about.
2: Sure. That was the Chike Uzabunum case out of Georgia. And he was a student that was censored on campus because he was preaching the gospel. And uh, it, it essentially what happened is, is uh, the university said, well, uh, we violated your rights, but we're going to stop doing it in the future. Therefore, you should just go away. You don't get any <laughs> compensation for the fact that we violated them in the past. And the Supreme Court said, "No, no, no. Free speech rights are too important for that." And, and that was an eight uh, and, to one vote, right? An eight to one vote. So I think that bodes very well for free speech in our country, despite the fact that you've got um, even the media, which is just so counterintuitive to me, the media advocating for this <laughs> uh, this this uh, cancel culture, uh, which and and their their whole bottom line is based upon the First Amendment. Yes.
1: Yeah, the last people you'd think would be uh, oblivious to free speech. You know, Kevin, I had a question in regard to the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, We were real excited. Yeah, the Department of Civil Rights uh, under HHS. Yes. We were excited uh, with the previous administration when that came into being, and there were so many different things that were coming up. You had a a place to lodge your complaint and they'd look into it and potentially withhold funding from hospitals if they violated your rights. What do we anticipate happening with those cases going forward?
2: It's unclear. Uh, You're right that there was, it was awesome having an advocate there, some good people in place that, uh, that really believed in right of conscience, really believed in freedom of speech and protecting those that may not be, uh, going along with the flow um, and because of their convictions, tell them otherwise. And uh, and so what will happen with those complaints? Well, at least what happened in previous administrations that weren't as favorable to rights of conscience and freedom of speech, they just languished, um, never pursued them um, and eventually uh, maybe found a way to get rid of them without uh, actually enforcing the law. Um, hopefully uh, that that we haven't digressed that far so quickly. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. Kevin, the Alliance for Defending
0: Freedom does a lot of good work. How do you get funding?
2: Um, we get funded, uh, you know, just a few dollars at a time, most of the time from generous donors across the country. We do uh, all of our work free of charge. and and uh, I think uh, and we have a great uh, department that tells people about our work and allows you to partner with us so that we can, protect life and liberty and family, just go to ADFlegal.org and you can figure out um, how we get our money and what we do with it.
0: ADFlegal.org. Please go there. You may be protecting someone you know, love, or who takes care of you. Greg, what are some final thoughts you have?
3: No, I just, well, I wanted to thank Kevin again, because I think this is one area where the legal profession and the medical profession need to work together. Uh, it is so important that we continue to have the right to practice medicine that is patient-centric, that is loving and compassionate, and based in good science. So, uh, I just, I just can't make that point strong enough. This, the, the whole future on our profession depends on what the outcome of this, this, this whole debate will be. And Kevin, what final thoughts do
0: you have for our listeners on this topic?
2: I just want to say that uh, we appreciate groups like Catholic Medical Association, excuse me, Catholic Medical Association, I have a hard time saying it, standing up. Because, you know, it's one thing to have rights, but it's another thing to take to be brave enough to assert them. Because in this in this day and age, some you're going to take some you're going to take some hits in the media.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you for being out there for us, Kevin. I just love you people at ADF. I look forward to meeting some of you at Napa Institute this summer where I first uh, met you guys. God bless you. We'll be back with the end of this episode of Dr. Doctor in a moment.
1: And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question.
0: Yes. So in reversing some regretted medical decisions, what is the success rate for achieving pregnancy for women who have their tubes untied? According to Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, it's between 50 and 80 percent. Yeah. And how about when vasectomies are reversed? What percent of the time do enough sperm get through that could help achieve pregnancy? 87% of the time. And they achieve pregnancy in about 50% of those couples. So regretted decisions can be turned around, even as was alluded to in the discussion, and we've recorded an episode that will air soon on reversing An abortion after the first abortion pill, but before the second. Even that has a greater than 50% survival rate for the baby.
1: Second chances. What a blessing. Never, never feel like you're without opportunities. Andrew, what are your top three takeaways for this episode? You know, Tom, I really enjoy talking to these guys. This is something that I think for people in the CMA and really, I think for a lot of people, this weighs on their hearts. And so I guess my, my top takeaway was that this is not a religious issue that only hooky religious people care about. <laughs> this is a fundamental human rights issue. And it's a patient's rights issue. As Greg described beautifully, patients deserve to have physicians and medical professionals who will follow their conscience so that they can get good care. You don't want a conscript and you don't want a vending machine. Uh, Maybe some people do, but many don't. And so it's a a human rights and patient's right issue. Um, I think the other thing that was very telling was from Kevin when he had mentioned the eight to one decision protecting free speech with the case that the ADF was involved in. So he made the comment that free speech is alive and well in America. I think sometimes you, you watch the news cycle and you don't feel that's the case. Uh, especially with big tech, which we discussed, but there is a lot of legal protection, as he said, if you're willing to stick your neck out for it. And then, I guess, lastly, the the biggest takeaway I think many of our listeners feel like: what do I do to help? How can I help? Biggest things, you know, support uh, ADF Alliance Defending Freedom. Donate if you can. Pray, pray for the people involved in this. Pray for your medical team, especially the folks at the CMA and at the ADF. And then, I always like to encourage as well write your representatives and congressmen and senators, you really have probably more pull than you can appreciate when they get something from you, especially if they get things frequently, you're on their radar. So I encourage
0: folks to take action where they can. I agree with all of those things. And I'm just so thankful. Kevin is actually going to take some time out in April to go to Benedictine College, where I and some other CMA members and medical students will be to help prepare pre-medical students and nursing students Uh, for their lives as Catholic uh, medical professionals, medical professionals who are Catholics who happen to be doctors and nurses, not doctors and nurses who happen to be Catholic. Uh, And this summer, I hope again to see the Alliance Defending Freedom out at the Napa Institute. Uh, And in fact, because of experiences I've had with them, I have become a donor to them. I believe so strongly in what they are doing. And what Kevin said, they are looking for partners. So if you can donate, you know, $10, $20 to them, it helps preserve these rights um, that are ours in our country. And so we come to the end of yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning and official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend, invite them to listen to their favorite podcast app.
1: Please also rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Please check out the old episodes there, are some that you may have missed. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
3: Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at doctordoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past
2: episodes at doctordoctor.org.